the snow is expected. If there isn't snow, then it's actually bad for this environment. You have to have a yeah. It's a cold environment, man. And then the, and then the, the moisture. Okay, we just wait a couple minutes and see if there's anybody else. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Wa usalli wa usallam ala sayyid al-awwaleen wa al-akhirin Nabiyyana Muhammadan wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa barak wa sallam Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Alhamdulillah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed us with another opportunity to reflect upon a very crucial issue for the Muslim world and I believe that in terms of leadership uh, and in terms of families, in terms of communities, uh, even as individuals, this is one of the most important issues that we are facing now uh, in the 21st century. And that issue has to do with change. So change of our status. You can look at change from many different levels. There's change on an international level. Uh, which you could call ummah-based change. There's change in the different nation-states where Muslims live. There's also change within uh, Muslim communities. In many uh, cases, you'll find that a type of stagnation uh, has come in. And I can recall vividly uh, being in Cape Town, and in downtown Cape Town, um, the Muslims were concentrated in the downtown area called the Malay Quarter. And when the apartheid system came in, when the political system of domination of people of color, they forced the Muslims out of the downtown area into the back of the mountains to the, to the lower, worst type of area. And it was forced removal. They literally would come with trucks and they would put people uh, in the trucks uh, and take them to another area and force them to settle in other areas. And, um, but one thing uh, was a slight problem for the apartheid regime, and that was that the Muslims said clearly, I'll move, but you cannot move the house of Allah. You can't do that. We will fight to the death. So they kept the masjids, and there are five or six masjids in the downtown area uh, of Cape Town, around the masjid is now colleges, uh, condominiums, and all types of things where it used to be a, a village of Muslims. But the masjid is still there. And in one of the masjids, I sat with you know the imam, and uh, he said that um, you know there was just a few people came for salat that day, uh, and then he said uh, he's been imam for like 45 years. I said, okay, 45 years. And uh, what type of programs do you have? He said, well, we still have uh, 
little halaqa and whatever. But then, you know, I said to myself, 45 years, you're the imam in one place. Okay, and it's the same programs you had 45 years ago. This is stagnation. Okay, that's not what a masjid is supposed to be. It's supposed to be like the heartbeat of the community. So the different issues, the different challenges faced by the community um, are reflected in the activities of the masjid. So that if it is stagnated, if it's dead, then it means really that that community in that area is dead. If you go on the other side of the mountain where the Muslims are, where they were forced to, to live, uh, one of the blessings of being forced all together is now in those areas Islam is thriving. Now they have schools, they have um, so many institutions that are over there. They live together in some areas. Um, the area I moved in was 90% Muslims. It's like a mini Islamic state. Um, but the issue that is faced by the Muslims there and everywhere is change. How can we uh, make this major, make this move? How can we gain the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in order to bring about this change? And in terms of change itself, uh, scholars, writers, activists look at it in different ways. So this issue of change, there's a lot of people who have written about this. And I'm bringing together a lot of information for you to give you some cutting-edge ideas about this change because it, it is impacting us and will impact in the future. We learned uh, clearly in Surah Al-Rad, verse 11, Allah will not change the condition of a people until they change that which is in themselves. So this is one of our clues, the, one of the key clue about change that we will be returning to as we go on. And the focus of our discussion, for the most part, is concerning Muslims in the West. Um, we're not so much interested or even qualified to deal with the change in the Muslim world because it's very complex, very complicated. But some of the things that I'm going to say to you will have impact on you. You'll be able to, again, see what is needed uh, even in the, the Islamic areas. And just to, re to, to review what we looked at in the first session, um, the concept of change itself, uh, people will use when it comes to deal with a political system, social, economic, whatever, reform or revival. These, these are two key words that's in here. And reform, as we learn, uh, is to, and this is the Webster Dictionary, to put or change into an improved form or condition. Okay? To amend or improve by change of form. So you change the form of it. Or removal of faults or abuses. But the next one now it says to put an end. They say to an evil, but to put an end to something by enforcing or introducing a better method or course of action. So you change the method completely. That's a reform. So now you will see what happened to the Jewish religion where they have Orthodox Jews, Reformed Jews, the Christian religion. You'll see now different types of churches and forms of Christianity. This is how generally we're looking at reform. Okay? And three, of course, to induce or cause to abandon evil ways. Like the person went to jail and he came out, now he's reformed. So that, that's another way of looking at reform. That's not the one we're looking at. Uh, it's, it's more like what number two is like where you will reform something, you literally are changing its shape. Okay? And that's different than a revival. Okay? And the key uh, hadith in this area uh, that we want to reflect on uh, tonight, again, leading us in, and this, scholars have, there's a lot of reflection on this hadith. Right? And the Prophet ﷺ told us, إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَبْعَثْ لِهَذِهِ الْأُمَّةِ so verily Allah will raise up for this ummah at the head of every century, or you could say as a hundred years, someone who will rejuvenate for them their religion. Okay, so this uh, is 
an authenticated hadith. Uh, it's in the Mishkat al-Musabih, but it has roots even uh, scholars like Sheikh Nasr al-Din al-Bani, who is considered one of the great muhaddith uh, people of this century, last century, uh, authenticated this hadith. Okay? So, at the head of every hundred years, and another hadith that said Qadun, which could be also um, not just a century, a generation. Okay, at the head of this period of time, uh, somebody would rejuvenate um, the religion. Okay, tajdeed. Yujaddit. It's tajdeed. Okay? So tajdeed literally means renewal, rejuvenation, okay, restoration, to restore to how it was prior to the change. You see the difference? Reform is going to change the methodology almost completely. But a revival is to restore how it was prior to the change. See, this is the key point. Another word which is used by scholars is ihya. And ihya is also a revival. Uh, put life into something. You're putting back life. So restoring the status quo without necessarily any attempt to improve or to reform it. This is ihya. So you, you are bringing life, uh, bring it back to its source. But another word sometimes that comes into this is islah. Okay, so that's another word, islah. Now, islah literally can mean, if you look it up in dictionaries, it will say reform. Okay, and even the negative reform that we're talking about, they could use in Arabic islah, but it also means to repair something to improve it. So within tajdeed, in the results of the tajdeed, there is islah, repair, but not reform. You see? Because if you're just renewing everything just to renew it, that doesn't make sense. There's got to be a purpose, and that is, it's going to be repaired. And um, this islah, uh, comes, you'll see this in many different places. It's also a very important, uh, word, uh, islah, and these three, uh, can be interchangeable sometimes. But, but the clearest word for us, which is in the authentic hadith, is tajdeed. So that is the clear, the clearest one, uh, for us in terms of dealing with, um, the arguments. But sometimes ihya is a very beautiful word, because it talks about life, giving life. Okay? Now, in terms of the scholarly de- definitions of tajdeed, and we'll look at from the old, the old early generation, middle generation, and, and new scholars, that Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri, uh, who died um, in 724 of the Common Era, 124 years after the Hijrah. So he said that uh, you know tajdeed is ihya. Right? So he said it is a revival of that which has disappeared or died out due to neglect of the Qur'an and the Sunnah and their requirements. So requirements is a big word now. What is required from the Qur'an and Sunnah is big, right? So it's been neglected or it disappeared. So you put life back into it. So Zuhari said that tajdeed is ihya. You see? Putting life back into uh, that which was needed. Imam al-Suyuti, rahimahullah, Jalal al-Din al-Suyuti, this is a great scholar. And many put him in the list of the Mujaddids. They put Suyuti for his century, because that would have been the 10th century uh, after the Hijrah. He died in 911. It's 1505 uh, of the Common Era. And he said, Tajdeed in religion means renewal of its guidance, explanation of its truth, as well as eradication of evil innovation, bidah, right? And of extremism or laxity in religion. So you see, so he's getting deep now. He's saying, we're gonna, it's gonna be renewed, your guidance will come, right? You explain the truth, and you eradicate bidah. So he's action-oriented, right? The movement people like this. Because he's action-oriented. So he's saying, eradicate the evil innovations. Also, get rid of extremism. You gotta be balanced now. And, and this is important for us today when we look at the Muslim world, because extremism is one of the problems we face, and also laxity in religion. Lazy Muslims. 
right? They're Muslim sometime, Muslim not another time. You know, they're, they're, they're lazy in their deen. Uh, come on in, brother. You, you want to check the brother and see what he needs? Salam. Right, well, Tadu. can have a seat. Sayuti? Sayuti, he's Egyptian. Yeah, he's Egyptian. Because Sayut is one of the big cities in uh, Egypt, Sayut. So he's a Sayuti, meaning from uh, there. Yeah. So he also said Tajdeed also means observance of people's benefits, right? Societal traditions and the norms of civilization and Sharia. So he said that's part of the He's giving a broad definition, right? So you've got to deal with the benefits, the people's traditions, right? And you've got to deal with civilization, man. what's happening in civilization. Now, a contemporary scholar, that is Dr. Yusuf al-Qardawi, um, has written a lot about this as well, and some of his shorter statements, which are right to the point and clear. He said, combining the beneficial old with the appropriate new. Al-Qadim al-Nafi' wal-Jadid al-Salih. Right? So the beneficial old with the appropriate new. So he said appropriate, right? So he, he, he condensed a lot of thoughts in a few words. Then he said being open to the outside world without melting into it. Okay? So you're open to the world. You're open to the West, but you don't get lost in the West. Okay? To rejuvenate the religion by the religion itself. So you use the deen to rejuvenate the deen. Instead of using Marxism or Freud, you know, or feminism or socialism to rejuvenate. And that's the, that's the fault that many people fell into. And when, when you have Islamic socialists and they took over the country, they may be bringing back justice for the poor but the problem is Marxism and socialism has baggage to it. You say you're a socialist, you've got a socialist theory on your back. And in that theory is godlessness. They don't, most socialists do not believe in God. If you're a feminist, many Muslim women wanted change, rightfully so, especially in the 20th century when Muslim countries had stagnated and women lost their rights, so they wanted change. But the problem was they saw the feminist movement in the West fighting for change. And they said, let's become Muslim feminists. Now, you want rights for women, but when you say you're a feminist, you got baggage on your back. Because in feminist theory, they, they focus more on the individual uh, rights than the family. And some feminists go as far as not even caring about men. They don't want a man at all. They're at war with men. They even believe they come from different planets, you know, different mentalities completely. That, and that's a problem for a Muslim. So what the Sheikh is saying is, use the religion. You can find within the deen, if you study it, you will find something that you can rejuvenate. But the problem is people don't study into the deen itself to be able to, reju to rejuvenate it properly with the deen. Now, to go further now than we were, we want to look at the qualities of the mujaddid. Okay? Because remember now, um, it says, Inna Allah yab'athu lihadihi al-ummah ala ra'si kulli miyat sana men, men yujaddid laha dinaha. Men, who? Now, the, every hundred years, now the word men can mean an individual, it can also mean a group, or it can mean a movement. So the mujaddid does not necessarily have to be an individual. It could be a group of people working simultaneous together. It could be a movement, what we call an Islamic movement. So there's a certain ideology or approach to Islam taken up by people and they're part of this tajdeed type of movement. Scholars also showed that you could have more than one mujaddid in different parts of the world simultaneously. Because the Muslim world is so uh, vast that what happens in the Indo-Pakistani subcontinent may be very much different than what happened in North Africa or West Africa. It's, it's way different culture. 
although it's Islam, right? So you could have a mujaddid reviving in West Africa and a mujaddid reviving in India. Okay, so it doesn't necessarily have to be one person that everybody simultaneously in the Muslim world is following. Okay, so these are different concepts. But now, given you the basis of a lot of discussion on this, what are some of the qualities of a mujaddid? Okay, because somebody might say, this person's a mujaddid. You'll hear this being said. What are some of the qualities? Number one, that person should be an excellent Muslim, fully practicing in thought and in attitude. Okay? Two, they should have a thorough and comprehensive grasp of Islam. It's a comprehensive one. So they're not in a narrow madhab. They have to study other schools of thought. They have to have a comprehensive look. If you're talking about tajdeed now, then you'll see that the people who qualify with this, they study other scholars, not just one madhab, but they go outside of it. Okay? Next, the ability to distinguish Islam from un-Islam, okay, or what is other than Islam. In the finest details, they can distinguish it. Because if you're going to renew, if you're going to take us back, we're in a contemporary period now, and you want to go back to the original, you have to distinguish those issues that are not Islamic. You have to know how to do this, right? It's not everybody can be a mujaddid. A person could be a great scholar, but they would not be a mujaddid. Okay? Also, the ability to extract the truth from long-established falsehoods. This is deep. Because, and I found this out practically in our community, that most Muslims base their religion on their culture. So it's what my people used to do in my village, or in my city, or we in this part of the world. And sometimes there's falsehoods, things that are wrong, that they do, and they just do it. Like I remember in Cape Town, I had a lot of experiences in Cape Town actually, and I remember that the Cape Townians are originally Malay, from Indonesia, Malaysia, and you know, whatever. And they had this thing that they used to do in the spring, cutting the rumpies, they call it, cutting rumpies. So what they would do is when the spring season came, they would cut from grapefruits and other plants, and the leaves had a nice smell, and then they'd make it into a nice bouquet, and, give, and the man would wear it to the mosque. So everybody has this. The sisters cut the rumpies, and the man would, would bring it, to, and he would wear it on this special day to the masjid. An Indonesian scholar came to Cape Town and he said, this is a Buddhist tradition. This is Buddhism that we used to practice in Indonesia, right? Uh, but the Muslims were so far away from Indonesia, they didn't know the difference, right? So they did it because the people who follow seasons for their religion, right? And so he brought that there and, you know, when he um, did that, some people get angry, right? And they say, like, my mother used to do that. And he said, well, this is what he said. Are you saying my mother is wrong? So he's going to fight you, right? You don't say anything about his mother, right? And so this, is, this part is, gets the mujeddin in a little bit of trouble. Okay? But it's, but it's part of the requirement. So the mujeddin needs a clear mind, penetrating vision, right? Unbiased, straight thinking. He's not biased. He doesn't care about those Pakistanis or those Arabs or those Turks. No bias. Right? Clear. Straight thinking. The ability to see the straight, the right path, clear of all extremes. And he keeps balance. So you could, he stays on the straight path in his thinking and he keeps, he's balanced, right? It's very important for a mujaddid. The ability to think independently of contemporary and century-old social and other prejudices. Right? Independent thinking. Now, here, the courage to fight against the evils of the time. The mujaddid has to have courage. Because it's going to fight against whatever the evils are. And, and this is where the scholars look at the type of scholarly mujaddid, and that is competency in ijtihad and the work of reconstruction. Ijtihad is the ability to make a religious decision, 
right? Based on the, t- that takes a lot to be a mujtahid. You have to have a, a comprehensive knowledge uh, of the deen, uh, and the ability to make the decisions in the particular time zone or environment that you're in. Okay? And then, you see what he says? And the work of reconstruction. To reconstruct. Okay? Now, there's some misconceptions about a mujaddid. And Sheikh Taqiyuddin Usmani, many of you may have heard him from Pakistan, um, this is from some of his writings. Very, very interesting points that he made because Pakistan had a lot of mujaddids running around and Mahdi's and they had a lot of things over there. So this is some of his writings. This is important. He said a mujaddid is not a formal designation like a prophet and a messenger. A prophet is chosen by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or a messenger. Mujaddid is not a formal designation. Okay? It's only through his, his work that he is recognized as such. Okay? Two, a true mujaddid does not claim to be a mujaddid with certainty, nor does he invite others to believe in him as such. As I said before, if somebody comes to you and says, if somebody's saying he's the Mahdi, run the other way. Run from him, let me tell you. And mujaddid, if somebody's claiming to be a mujaddid, he's not a mujaddid. Three, even if the majority of the Muslims is of the opinion that a particular person is a mujaddid, there is no religious obligation on others to believe in him as a mujaddid. Okay? You benefit from the person. It's not an obligation. Okay, and this is, this is a point in a place where he was coming from India and Pakistan, where there's a lot of movements and groups, and they say, my sheikh is the best one, and my one is a mujaddid, so you must follow him, or you're not in Islam, or something like this. He said no. Because it's not a designation like this. Okay? For the mujaddid does not receive any authentic revelation from Allah, like a prophet, nor does he make such a claim. So if he's saying he's getting visions and revelations, ilham, run the other way. Now he may get ilham, it's possible. It's not wahi. Wahi is revelation. Ilham would be like a dream, right? But you, if you have a, a righteous dream, you can't say it's true until it happens, right? It's got to happen. Five, it's not necessary that a mujaddid knows himself to be a mujaddid, uh, let, 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 let alone laying any claim to this effect. Okay? And next, a mujaddid is not infallible in his sayings and acts like a prophet. His sayings and acts normally conform to the Islamic teachings, but they are not treated like the sayings and actions of a prophet. This is very important. Because when it comes to the religion, the, the, prophet, the prophets have isma. The Prophet ﷺ, you know, if it's authentic hadith, then we believe it is, he, he did not speak from himself, right? He is wahyun yuha, that Allah gave him this knowledge. Anybody else? Not treated like that. We benefit from the knowledge of this individual or this movement, but it is not treated in the same way. So these misconceptions are very important misconceptions. Of course, for those who are looking at tajdeed um, on the level of, um, you know, ummah, the ummah and this individual who will rise up, this is a certain level, uh, which we are actually in need of today, by the way. Uh, we could use somebody, you know, who has this type of um, uh, consciousness. Now, the concept of, remember the hadith, that this mujaddid would come at the head of every hundred years or a century, right? Now, one of the great uh, scholars named Ibn Khaldun, Rahimahullah, a great Tunisian scholar, um, he wrote a book. This is called the Muqaddimah. It's an introduction to the world history. The Muqaddimah. And this is a very important uh, book in Islamic history. And in this Muqaddimah, he looked at society and he looked at change in society. Now, Ibn Khaldun is actually called and recognized even today as the father of sociology. Because sociology is the study of interactions of people. 
So he, as a historian, for the first time, didn't just look at history like string all these dates together. He looked at the relationship of people to each other and what comes out of it. And Ibn Khaldun has got a uh, cyclical theory. He has a theory of a cycle. And he said the Muslim ummah uh, and even all nations sort of go through this cyclical change. He did this after studying Muslims. And he especially focused on Andalusia, on Spain and North Africa. He focused on this. and um, But this is good for even other nations as well. And that is that the first generation that establishes a movement, say Islam is established in a certain area, they strive, they struggle, you know, they give of themselves. Uh, their children are with them. So the next generation coming up, that's maybe 20 years later or so, the next generation now, they're still striving and struggling, but they're not the original. They're a little, it's a little softer because they, they sort of won the battle like. Okay, the next generation that comes, because the battles won, they've consolidated themselves, and now they're in a palace. So the third generation is now living sort of a softer life, but because they're a third generation, they still can um, remember uh, the founder. It's like sixty years later, or you know, you know, eighty years. You know, they can remember the founder, but the fourth generation. They, unless there's a revival, unless there's tajdeed, then the fourth generation can literally turn around and go against what the original generation did. And there are some movements in uh, Andalusia, North Africa, that we study, the Murabitun, Muwahidun, and you'll see this cyclical thing. This is his theory. You can apply this to many um, empires, Islamic empires and movements. You, you watch them. Watch what happens. Uh, to a nation after about a hundred years or so, right? And, and, and see the changes that it goes about. So this is another concept in Tajdeed, uh, which is also very important. This is Ibn Khaldun uh, and his Muqaddimah. Okay? And any questions anybody has on the general uh, theory of Tajdeed uh, or the Mujaddid um, that we're talking about? Remember, this is a big idea, right? It can be political Tajdeed, it can be Ummah, it can be groups, it can be nations, it can be individuals, a lot of different levels. Okay? Any questions anybody has uh, concerning that? I talked about unbiased. That's one thing that is really uh, a crucial issue yeah. in our community. Where the mosques are based on culture, <coughs> masajids are based on mm-hmm. the, the nations they come from. That's right. And the language they speak so instead of a, you know, a culminated community, mm-hmm. it's a divided community now. And, and this is why it's important to go back to the uh, Jamia Masjid. And the Jamia is where everybody comes. And it was okay. I mean, I remember the Jami Mosque when we were in the Jami Mosque and boasted. And mashallah, you know, we had our problems and everything. But somebody came back to me and he said, you know, brother, those were the golden ages of Islam in Toronto. Why is it the golden age? Like, why would he say this? Not because we were doing anything, I think, that special, because we had a lot of problems, right? But everybody was together. So we had all schools of thought, all movements. Everybody was in the same masjid. Okay, and so, and and we were learning how to tolerate each other. You know, how to pray, a Hanafi, how to pray with a Shafi. The person can say, you know, he's being taught that, you know, did the Prophet ﷺ, you know, uh, how did he pray? People were stuck in their madhabs. So then the person says, Waladalin, the Imam says, and the Hanafi says, Amin, to himself, right? But the Shafi said, Amin. Okay, so now that might make the person uncomfortable, right? I was in a masjid one time in the Caribbean, I won't say which country. And um, the imam was beautiful. And he, he, he said, Walla darling. And I said, Amin. I was the only person in the mosque. When they finished, they said, Salaam alaikum. They said, Where's that shaitan? Where is he? Right? And so they came toward me and said, Here he is. 
I said, get Bukhari Hadith. And they got Bukhari Hadith, and I showed them how the Sahaba said, Amin, so loud, it shook the building. And they said, Astaghfirullah. Like, we didn't know this. Our teacher didn't teach us that. Right? So, in the Jami Mosque, what was happening were, Hanafis would say, Amin, out loud. Or they wouldn't feel bad because somebody next to them said, Amin, out loud. Because they knew that it was Sunnah. See? So that is unbiased teachings. Okay, all these arguments, you know, who, what's, what Salat is better, which one, who's the biggest imam, whatever. A scholar like Yusuf Qadawi, other people, you know, they had a big argument and he said, you know what the answer is? The Prophet ﷺ said, Sallu kamara'aytumuni usali. Pray as you have seen me pray. That's all he said. He didn't say pray according to that imam. Or that he, he said, pray as you have seen me pray. So that if somebody is praying like the Prophet ﷺ prayed, that's authentic. If the person follows a certain imam who takes on the Prophet, that's authentic. But we don't need to get, you know, agitated with each other or have hatred. And the mujaddid is the one who will take us back to sallu kamara aytamuni usalli. Right? The mujaddid renews the faith. Uh, and everybody's has a breath of fresh air. The Andalusian jurist, uh, Ibrahim al-Shatibi, he's a famous scholar, uh, faqih. He observed, he was talking about this hadith, about the tajdeed hadith. And he said, this hadith contains a positive message. And it is concerned with the common good and benefit of the ummah, generally. So he said, it has that hadith, positive. Maslaha. It's, it's generally helping the Muslims. And this, this is what we are looking at today. And I believe, again, that this is, um, this is cutting edge. This is cutting edge. And um, after being in the field for a long time, um, I went through the different lectures and talks and khutbahs to see, you know, if there's anything happening. Um, and I realized that there were certain hadith that were repeating themselves over and over again. And so I took them, and, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just a product of my circumstance, right? Because I would try to gear my talk in the communities based on their issues. What's happening in this community? What's going on? So I try to gear my talk based on the issues, Right, so now all these issue-oriented talks, okay, I put them together into a 40 hadith. Right, and these hadiths, you will see, and Allah knows best, that most of the talks that you run into, you're going to see one of these hadiths in it. It's unbelievable. I was watching a Turkish movie on Abdul Hamid. The Turks have made some very interesting uh, movies on uh, Abdul Hamid II you know, the last great sultan of the Ottomans. And he was under a lot of difficulty. And he went to his, his sheikh. And the sheikh told him a hadith. And I was sitting there shocked. It was one of the ones in this book here. This is an Ottomans, right? This is an Ottoman sheikh. Right? Way back. Right? But the issue that he was facing with the West and the problems, it is reflected. There are certain traditions, and that's the, the great beauty of um, the Prophet ﷺ and his traditions, that they can literally uh, benefit us at other points in time. So the 40 hadith now is a methodology. And we, inshallah, for the next few weeks as we go uh, into the spring, we want to be looking at this methodology. And, if, and, and anybody who cannot make it, it's very cold today and people can't make it, Anywhere you join on into the class is going to be like you just started the class. Because each one of these sections can stand by itself. They're all uh, issue-oriented things. They're the issues we faced. We face as Muslims. So what I'm talking about, the greater part of this change is an individual change. It's more of a family, maybe a community type of change. That's what we face in the West. 
Some of these hadith can be applied to the whole Muslim world. But for the most part, um, we're looking at, remember what Allah said, He will not change the conditions of a people till they change that which is in themselves. Okay? So it's got to begin on the inside. And the beginning of the 40 hadith are set here, and this is done on the system of Imam al-Nawawi. Imam al-Nawawi's famous 40 hadith, right? But this is not the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawawi. But there's a system how he set it up, right? So that you can easily be able to digest it, right? And you'll have a metan, you'll have a base structure, and you can build off the structure. So it's based on that. And all of the uh, uh, 40 hadith books, because there's one done by Ibn Hajj al-Asqalani, another one uh, al-Mundiri, there's a number of uh, uh, these hadith books done by scholars. Right? They all begin how Imam al-Nawi began. This is part of his system. And this is hadith number one. There's different versions of this hadith, but this one uh, I took, uh, an abbreviated you know, one, and this is Umar ibn Khattab reported that the Messenger of Allah said, إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالُ بِالنِّيَاتِ وَإِنَّمَا لِكُلِّ مَا نَوَى فَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى الدُّنْيَا يُسِيبُهَا أَوْ إِلَى إِمْرَأَةٍ يَنْكِهُهَا فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى مَهَاجِرَ إِلَيْهِ مُتَفَقٌ So you might have heard this hadith that said, إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالُ بِالنِّيَاتِ وَإِنَّمَا لِكُلِّ and some hadith says, for man cannot hijratu ilallahi wa rasuli, for hijratu ilallahi wa rasuli. So in other words, you, you know, verily, surely your actions are based on intentions, and surely every person will get what he intends. Okay? So this is the difference in some of the uh, reports. They're all basically the same. Some say that whoever's migration is to Allah and his messenger, it is for Allah and his messenger. Then the second part it says, whoever has migrated to achieve a worldly goal or in order to get married, then his migration will be exactly for what he intends. And that is important for us here in the West. It's very, very important. The niya. What is your intention? And I can remember vividly, vividly being in a, a conference here in Canada uh, and um, there was Sheikh Jaffa Sheikh Idris, who was a famous Sudanese scholar, uh, who was in Washington, he's in the Sudan, but a uh, great scholar, and it was a huge conference, and um, he gave his talk, and he was looking at the, the position of Muslims in the West. And he said to everybody, because he's a very straightforward person, he said, I went through my, the sources of all the hadiths, everything, and I cannot find a justifiable reason for you being here in the West. That's what he said to everybody. He said, I looked everywhere for you. In, the, in our books, people migrate to the West, or they migrate out of the Muslim world for business. Business people go. Some people go for political reasons. They're diplomats. Right? Some people go for struggle reasons. They're fighting against an enemy. Right? Some might go for tabligh. They might go to spread Islam or something, teach people. But ultimately, they return to the Muslim world. Right? It is temporary. Right? But you have come here to stay because there's a nice big you know, metro uh, uh, supermarket and you know, the lights stay on all day and the water doesn't turn off for 10 hours a day like in many of our countries. And he shocked everybody. And he said, I'm just being honest with you. May Allah help us. That night, they went to his room, and they, they kept him up till three in the morning. There was a crowd in front of his room. The next day he came back, and he said, I changed my fatwa. Because you have shown me that there are actually valid reasons why people have come to the West. Because some people are fleeing from religious persecution in the so-called Muslim world. In many cases, you have more religious freedom here than you do over there. I went to one of the Muslim countries, I don't like to call the names of the Muslim countries, 
But I went to one Muslim country. And um, there was a guide who was with us. And we were going along the highway. And we stopped at a restaurant. And it is the Muslim world, so they had a little masjid around the backside. So myself and the other brother with me, we went to make salat. And the guide is there, he's practicing Muslim and everything. So we went and we made salat and he stayed in the car. So afterwards we came back and we said, okay brother, um, you know, Dhuhr and Asa, we're on the road, man. And he said, I can't. And this is the desert. I didn't see anybody. A few people in a sleepy place, drinking shy or whatever. He said, but he was afraid that somebody would see him praying with us, with beards. And they would tell the secret police and they would put him in jail. He was so terrorized, he wouldn't even go around this back of the thing and make salat with us. This is a Muslim country, which I can say, alhamdulillah, now has changed. But at that point, which is like, you know, 15 years ago, so other people have migrated out of the Muslim world because of horrific warfare where their life, their family is being destroyed, their family, everything ruined. And they had to run to save themselves. Okay? So Sheikh Jaffa then said, I changed my fatwa. If your intention, you should make your intention to be deen, that you will establish the religion. Right? If you have this idea of establishing the religion in yourself and in your family, Right? Then you have, you have a valid reason for being here. In other words, if your reason is, as the hadith says, because you wanted to marry a Canadian girl, or you wanted to get a job in a big, uh, corporation, if that's what your intention is, that's what the hadith says, that's all you're gonna get. So your hijrah is useless. Your migration is useless. There's no blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So in other words, many people did migrate here for some of these reasons, but Allah is merciful, and you can change your intention. Right? So in change your intention that you want to establish the deen, establish the religion in your life, you want to establish it in the lives of your children, right? And, and, and you will do something to help the community you will do something for the religion. That's part of your intention. There's nothing wrong with living in a, in, a, in a peaceful country that has good conditions. That's okay. But that should not be the only reason why we're here. Okay? So this is the way Imam al we start his book. And everybody starts the same way. Because it is crucial. It is a crucial issue. Niyyah is essential. Okay? So this is the beginning. Hadith, okay, open up, I'll open the floor for questions when we go from a different hadith. Now. Was it referring to the hijrah from Mecca to Medina or hijrah from Hijrah in general. But, I mean, was it, the <coughs> prophet was referring to that hijrah from Mecca to Medina? In yeah. Um, from what we understand, it's, 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 it is in general. Of course, that was the big, that was the great hijrah that was there, but it is in general because some people made hijrah to Ethiopia. They made hijrah before, uh, Medina, right? They went to Ethiopia. It was two times they went over there. So, it is in general the concept of, you know, migration. This hadith comes more into action nowadays because there's more movement of people. That's right. And we need to know what our intention is. That's right, and, 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 and many people move, they, they may feel like they're even refugees, and you know, we all move for a certain reason. Just about everybody came here for a certain reason. I came here myself. I'm not from Canada, I'm from the United States. So everybody comes from different places, you know, to a sanctuary like Canada, right? But what's the intention of coming here? It may initially be just to escape the fighting, to escape the drought, right? To ex escape ignorance. But it has to change. 
We has to, you know, we, we have to be able to, and that's the concept of tajdeed, right? That you renew yourself. You see it? You renew, you put life into yourself. So maybe for a period of time, you had the wrong hijrah, you make tajdeed of your niyyah. You see it? You renew your intentions. So this is a, a really important concept for us. And, 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 and that's the reason why I believe, or part of the reason why, after the mercy of Allah, why this ummah has lasted so long. Because otherwise, with all the attacks that have been on the Muslim world, we, we should have been, they should be writing about us in history books. After the Mongols hit us, we were not supposed to be left alive. After the Crusaders came on us, over and over and over and over and over again, destroying everything to the last outpost on Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, the last outpost, and then even abolishing the Khilafat. They abolished our leader. Right? But still, we're the fastest growing religion in the world. Up until now. It's a headless body, it's a chicken like running around without its head. But it's alive. Okay, so this is this is a really important way to start. It's number one. Because niya is the important thing of everything, right? Is your niya. In your prayers, your fasting, your zakat, everything you do, you have to make niya. Right? So it's, it's, it's the important part of our tajdeed, also that we do it for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yeah. It's used for the, you know, uh, supporting and, you know, working with, uh, you know, for policy. Yeah. And, you know, and we have stories, and this is what Sheikh Jaffa also learned when he was speaking to the people, is that there were some people who came here not practicing Islam, and after a while they started practicing Islam. Here. Because for the first time, they had to say to themselves, I'm a Muslim. What is a Muslim? Because when you, everybody else is a Muslim around you, you don't even ask. You just do the salat like everybody, you fast like whatever. But now you're in a place where there's Christians, Buddhists, people with no religion, people who hate religion, atheists. Now you say you're a Muslim? What is a Muslim? Somebody's going to ask you. And if you don't know, then you're forced to do research. And that research is actually a blessing. So the person does the research and then reads the life of Prophet Muhammad and falls in love with him. Reads the Qur'an for the first time for the meaning. Instead of just listening to Tarawih prayer, you know, like, like a parrot. Now he reads it, the, the, the explanation, and now knows what it says for the first time. So that person, in a sense, you can say, takes another shahada. They renew their deen, maybe at 25 years old. Maybe at 35 years old, he renews his religion. Maybe she never used to cover up at all. And she comes here and now she puts on hijab. And the strange thing is they may go back to their country, right? And when they go back, they're practicing Islam, and everybody looks at them and says, what happened to you? You're Canadian, man. You're supposed to come here with... You know, like looking cool, man, with your hair flipped up and, you know, whatever, and now you got a beard and you want to go to Fajr. What is this? You're supposed to look good. I was on a plane one time flying to, to, to the Caribbean, you know, and I looked at this, um, this girl, uh, this sister, and I looked at something different about her. And her eyes were like blue. But she doesn't have blue eyes. Man. So I said, like, uh, excuse me, like, what is this, man? She said, no, I'm coming from Canada, right? So i got to have blue eyes. Like, you know, you can put in the fault lenses and make your eye change. So she wanted to look Canadian, right? So she put in her blue eyes. This is a complete reversal. He's coming back with Dean and inspiring people. That is the power of Islam. You see? Some even say it's part of what the Western sun rises, like the sun rising in the West. 
right? That out of the Western countries came many Muslims who inspired people, even in the Muslim countries. So this hadith of Niyyah is very intention, uh, important to set the stage. Another one, hadith number two, um, which is a very important hadith for me to explain what is happening. Because um, sometimes people will say, like, we're Muslims, we have the Qur'an, we have the Prophet ﷺ, why are we not on the top? Why are we not the best in the world? Why is these things happening? What's going on? Okay? The Prophet ﷺ said this hadith number two, uh, Abu Huraira reported that the Messenger of Allah ﷺ said, Ummati hadihi ummatun marhuma." لَيْسَ عَلَيْهَا عَذَابٌ فِي الْآخِرَةِ عَذَابُهَا فِي الدُّنْيَا الْفِتْنِ وَزَلَازَ وَالْقَتَلِ So he said, this my nation, ummati هَذِهِ ummatun marhuma. You see it. My nation, ummati, right, is a nation that has mercy on it. Mercy. marhuma, right? From Rahma. Its punishment is not in the hereafter but its punishment is in the dunya, in this world. Fitan, zalazu, qatal. Fitan is the plural of fitna, which is a trial, a temptation, a gray area, a confusion. And zalazul is the earthquakes, and qatal is murder. So when you look at this now, it's in Abu Dawud ibn Majah and Ahmed, Slightly different forms. Very important hadith to understand what's going on. What's happening to us is actually a mercy. It's a wake-up call. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is waking us up from a deep sleep. Okay? What is, because the punishment, it's not going to be in the next life. Meaning, and when we were looking at journey of, of life, we found out that there are some Muslims who because of their sins, they will enter the fire. They are Jahannamiyun, the people of Jahannam. They're Muslims, right? And they will burn for a period of time. Then they will come back out. Because there is a grain of Tawheed in them, right? they would not last forever in the fire. Okay? So the punishment is not in the next life. I mean, ultimate. But the punishment is here. In other words, your, your, our, our wake up call is right here. And it will be fitna. There will be trials, temptations, confusion. Right? This is part of a wake up call, right? There will also be natural disasters, earthquakes. Right? And many of these earthquakes in the past 20 years or so have hit Muslim countries. Look at the list of them. Look at the tsunamis and whatnot. And earthquakes. Okay? And murder. And now we see it. Of all the people in the world, Muslim blood right now, it means nothing to, to, the, to, to, to people. Right? Look at the press. Look what happens. Every day, how many hundred die in Afghanistan? These one die in Syria. This one dies in Iraq. This one dies in Somalia. This one dies in Mindanao in the Philippines. This, you know, Muslim, I mean, over a million Uyghur Muslims in China are in prison, are in concentration camps. Could you imagine if a hundred thousand Europeans were in concentration camps? Could you imagine if a thousand Canadians were in concentration camps being tortured? What would happen? You see? So this is our punishment. And it is to wake us up. And this has happened to us um, at different points in Islamic history. And this, I believe, where, where we're going now, there's, there's something big, major coming next. That's why we said when we looked at the Hadith, <clears throat> we found that just about all of the minor signs of Qiyamah have been completed. Only thing that appears to be left of the major is the Mahdi. That literally one will be raised up, 
But oppression is going to be intensified on us until the reaction comes. Okay? But Allah knows best. Uh, it could be another hundred years. Because they thought the same thing 500 years ago. Imam al-Suyuti, he thought that, the, that it was close. Right? Imam al-Suyuti. That's 16th century, right? So, so Allah knows best when it's going to actually happen. But we do know it is what we call sunnatullah. It is the way of Allah. And I go back, and it's important for you, many of you have studied this, but I always go back when I look at our situation to the 13th century of the common era when uh, the Muslim world was widespread and um, Baghdad was the richest city on earth. And Muslims were divided into nation states, right, all on their own. The Khalifa was symbolic. He was a, a young guy and he just played most of the time with roses and writing poetry. Right? His army was only like 12,000. It's supposed to be the ruler of the Muslim world. Right? And the, the ulama were paid a tiny amount of money. They said the slave of the Khalifa, Allah ad-Din al-Tabarasi, his crops brought about 300,000 dinars per year. This is the slave of the Khalifa. Slave, of course, doesn't mean somebody in, you know, out in the plantation. He's a rich man, right? But he's under the control of the Khalifa. And the ulama are only getting like 50 you know, dinars per month. Right? That one of the scholars, Ibn al-Lathir, he said around this time of the explosion, um, there was no hujjaj from Baghdad to Mecca. Nobody went, no hajj group. Because they said they didn't have time to make hajj. So nobody went from Baghdad to Mecca. And it's the richest city in the world, right? It's not that far either, right? And it's at that time that they came in conflict with a nation far to the northeast, uh, the northeast of Asia. And they insulted some of their merchants and killed some of their people. And the leader of this group, whose name was Genghis Khan, he said, there's only one sun in the sky and there's only one Khan on this earth. Right? And he unleashed his people on the Muslim world. Unleashed them. And you read the story of what Mongols did. You will not believe it. You think it's a fantasy. It cannot be real. Okay, what they, what they did. And the biggest problem was our disunity, all the things that we were doing to each other, right, the weaknesses. This is a punishment unleashed on us. Serious punishment. And, he, and his forces continued going through, killing hundreds and thousands of people, right, moving from city to city. And when he came to Baghdad, and the writer is reporting that... Um, they surrounded Baghdad and the Khalifa was listening to his favorite belly dancer. So she was dancing and he was enjoying it, right? And they shot an arrow and it went through the curtains in the Khalifa's castle and it killed his belly dancer. This is in a report. Okay? Now, wh what would you do? He said, take her out of there, get me another belly dancer. This is a state of insanity, Right? Your city is surrounded like that. It's, it's total insanity. It's like somebody on drugs, right? And the Mongols, as you know, destroyed Baghdad, you know, killed uh, millions, destroyed the books. And when they were about to destroy the rest of the Muslim world and to go into Mecca and Medina, then Sayyid al-Din Qutuz rahimahullah of, of the Mamluks of Egypt, he united the Muslims and they defeated the Mongols in Ain Jalut, which is in Jordan. They defeated them there. They were on their way to Mecca and Medina. They defeated them and they drove them back. And some of the Mongols, when they saw Muslims standing up, they started taking shahada and becoming Muslim. Right? And then Islam spread amongst even the Mongols. They became the Mughals of India, right? And it started to spread. And that period of time under the Mamluks, 
is one of the golden ages of Islamic literature. Many of the scholars, you know, Ibn Kathir and, you know, uh, you know, Fatul Badi, uh, many scholars, you know, many of the books are, is in Mamluk period. Right after the destruction, right? It was a golden age. Okay, so this is a reality. And as we go into the methodology of tajdeed, we need to reflect on our situation. When we have the context, context is important, then we understand the need for change. So this is how we will approach um, our subject. We will reflect upon you know, what is happening uh, in the Muslim world, and then we will look, find the methodology of change. How do we bring about the change within ourselves, and the change within our families, and the change within our nation? I want to open up the floor for any uh, final questions that anybody has uh, concerning um, uh, Tajdeed. Floor is open for any questions. So this text here, 40 Hadith, we have, they are available here. They're $15 online and here I'm just for $10. And um, those who may be uh, listening in the listening or visual audience, um, hakeemquick.com, www.hakeemquick. H-A-K-I-M-Q-U-I-C-K dot com. You can get it online. Uh, also, 40 Hadith of Islamic Revival. Okay? So this is the text, this is the metan, and we will be looking at the different um, uh, subjects, you know, and how we revive Islam in ourselves, in our families, and in the Muslim world. So I leave you with these thoughts, and I ask Allah to have mercy on me and you. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.